Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Okay, so today, we're, uh, or I'm interviewing Tim Jones. He is the engineer at Station 76 for Orange County Fire Rescue. He was hired back in 2003. What was your hire date exactly? So my hire date was actually September 11th, 2003 is my official hire date for Orange County Fire Rescue. So um, I think that was very cool of them to do that, to make that our official date. So it's uh, quite memorable, obviously. Yeah. Um, now you grew up in New York. Yep. What, what part of New York? I grew up in the Bronx. So yeah, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. Uh, I was born in 1976. Um, my mother and father were pretty much, my father was born in North Carolina. Uh, my mother was born in the Bronx. Uh, so she's still in the Bronx. <laughs> my mother just, that's, that's home. That's where she was born and raised. Um, she gets down here to visit whenever she can, but that's home. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a senior in high school. Um, but until then, we had, like I said, an amazing relationship. He was definitely a, a huge part of my life, a huge influence. Um, a lot of my hard work ethic was from him. Not that my mother didn't work hard, but I just saw my father wake up in the morning, go to work, uh, come home, take a nap, take care of us, feed us. And then by the time we're settling down, doing homework, he was getting dressed to go back to his second job. So um, that was what, a huge influence in my life. What did, what did your dad do for a living? So my dad worked for Parks and Rec. So basically in New York City, they have a big thing called Parks and Recreation. And what he did for them was basically make sure all the city parks in his area had what they needed to be effective. So he made sure that they were clean. So I, sometimes I tell people he was a sanitation worker because he did, he did go out there and clean some of the parks. Um, when he first started, uh, he made sure they had games. He made sure that the basketball hoops were taken care of. Um, later in his career, when he got a little bit older, he moved into an office and kind of just supervised the crew of people. So. What What was his second job? Uh, he worked at a bar, believe it or not. So growing up, my dad was a, was a bar manager. A good buddy of his owned a bar, and he worked there. And I remember a few nights, uh, many a nights, I should say, falling asleep on the pinball machine. Like, <laughs> they set up a little stool for me in front of the pinball machine, and I'd sit there, and my dad would work, and I'd fall asleep on a pinball machine. So yeah, you can say I kind of kind of grew up in a bar just a little bit. So a little bit, bit of background between uh, you and I. Uh, we worked together at Station 71. Yep. You were one of the more senior firefighters there um, when, when I got assigned there as the lieutenant. And there had been many a nights that you and I would sit up in the day room watching TV, talking about this and that. And it was clear to me early on that you had a great deal of admiration for your mother. And um, part of that, I, I think, was mainly because of, of the example that she set for you and your, your brothers. Um, what, did she, what did she do for a living? 
So when my mom first started her career, she stayed at home for a little while with, with me and my brother. And then she went and she worked uh, downtown Manhattan for a law, a law firm down there. Um, and she was a secretary. My mother went to school and she learned how to write shorthand, which most people probably don't know what that is now. But um, she learned how to write shorthand. She was a typist, blah, blah, blah. She did whatever she needed to do for this law firm. Um, she did that for many, many years. Uh, again, one of the reasons I have a lot of respect for my mother is because, again, I remember her waking up at, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, having to walk to the bus stop to take a bus, to take a train, to get into the city, um, which us New Yorkers call Manhattan the city, um, to get into the city and, you know, stay there late and watch her come home late. So she's always done that. Uh, again, my mother's trajectory in her career is after that, she decided she um, wanted to work for the Board of Education. So she was a secretary for the Board of Education for, I think she did that almost 20 years. Um, she retired recently and she went back. And since then, she's just been going back to school and getting her degrees and, and things of that nature. So I think me and my mother graduated from college around the same time. Like she went back to school and got her degree when I was in school getting mine. So it's pretty cool. Now, you were a senior in high school when your father passed away. Yes. Now, after you graduated from high school, did you go right into college? I didn't. So a brief story. Um, when I was in high school, again, I, I worked in the city. I, I mean, I lived in a city. I worked in a city. My parents, you know, were, were, were city workers at that point, all work, you know, and I want to become a fireman. I told myself that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go straight from high school. Um, I'm going to take the test for, I, again, living in New York, it would have been FDNY at the time. And I went and got all the books, got all the study guides, got everything I could get. So my mother was just very adamant about me wanting, wanting me to go to school first. Um, my father had just passed away. I knew we didn't have the money to afford it for me to go, um, for me to, go to college. So it was uh, something that weighed heavy on me. Again, to make a very long story short, I decided after speaking with my mother, I had a couple of cousins who are extremely academics. Um, and so between pretty much my mother and my two cousins that are both you know, very, very smart individuals, they convinced me to go to college first. So I went to college for a couple of years. I got an associate's degree, um, realized that college was just not my thing. Um, I did well, I did very well actually. And after college, I went back to New York. I moved around, I did some things. Um, I had a degree in marketing and I just started to live life. Like I traveled, I, I lived in California for a while, back to New York and so forth and so on. And then um, I was living in California on September 11, 2001, a buddy of mine called me and was like, hey, you know what's going on? I was asleep. I just got home from work. Uh, obviously, the time difference. I was like, no, what's up? He's like, man, just turn on the TV. Make a long story short, turned on the TV, saw what was going on. Um, and of course, the first thing that went through my mind is if I would have went right out of high school, would I or could I have been there? So that really touched me in a way where it was like, that's it, I'm done. I packed up my stuff. I moved back to Florida, I believe in October or November of 2001. I applied for the fire department. Uh, didn't make it my first go around. I had a very bad driving record at the time. <laughs> a little bit of too many tickets for Orange County to hire me. Um, but I applied again after that and got hired. So what, uh, what college did you go to? Uh, Delhi State University in New York. It's a small school, upstate New York in the Catskills. Um, beautiful, beautiful country. A lot of people think of New York, they only think of, you know, the city. Um, but upstate New York and the, the state of New York itself is absolutely gorgeous. So I went to college upstate New York. And I know that you were in a fraternity. What, what's the name of your Sigma fraternity? Sigma Phi Rho. 
Sigma Phi Rho was the fraternity, a very young fraternity back then, um, which was one of the things that I really enjoyed because it gave me the opportunity to help build um, with this fraternity and uh, all the things we did, the, uh, the, the charity work and everything was just, was just amazing. So yeah, we did have some fun. We did party a little bit, but a lot of what we did was just help out in the community, which I thought was awesome. We did a lot of mentoring programs, uh, training programs to get people jobs when they got out of school. So to me, that was all a big part of it for me. So one of the things that um, has always struck me when, you know, through getting to know you, working with you, um, you know, late nights, sitting in the day room talking, uh, waiting for the next call. Um, and then seeing you operate on scenes and, and watching you mentor younger firefighters was, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's a, a natural ability. Um, I tend to think of leadership um, ability as something that's learned and developed over time. But I always saw you as somebody that had a, a seemingly natural ability to lead others. And, and I would imagine that we've never had this conversation before, but um, when you were in the fraternity, did you play any leadership role within the fraternity? I did actually. So I don't know. I mean, how, you know, how much people know about fraternities, but when you're, when you're pledging a fraternity, every fraternity is different, right? You see a lot of stuff on television and um, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, what they consider, you know, black fraternities, um, you see a lot of things and a lot of things are different, but I think one of the things I liked about the fraternity is number one, when I was pledging, there was only five of us. So we had a very small pledge class and um, I was the line prez of my, of my class. So that was pretty much a leadership role for me. You know, I was in charge of these, these, these you know, four other gentlemen. Um, we did everything together, but I was seen as, as the leader and the guys who were pledging us um, always called, you know, I, again, I was the line press. Something went wrong, it was my fault. Something went good, it was my fault. Um, again, like I said, being in such a, a young fraternity, um, again, some of these black fraternities have been around since, you know, 1919, 1908, 1920, you know? Um, and we definitely weren't, you know, that old. So it gave me the opportunity to actually make a lot of changes and, and be able to be seen as a leader. And I, I definitely um, relish the, uh, the opportunities that were given to me by being in the fraternity and learned a lot. So after you graduated from college and you went in uh, to uh, the private sector. Um, retail. I went into retail. I, 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 you know, and it was so... It was right out of school. I guess when I first got out of high school, before I really decided I was going to go to college. Folding sweaters at the Gap? Folding sweaters at the Gap, man. I really did. <laughs> I, listen, so I was in, I'll tell you what my title was. I worked at Gap, and, right? And I worked at the largest, at the time, it was one of the largest uh, retail stores, gro dollar-wise, grossing dollar-wise um, in the country. But anyway, it was right there on 34th and Borey, right by the uh, Empire State Building. And I was at what they, my official title was an upper level denim expert, right? So I was, I was an expert in women's denim jeans. So that was my, that was, that was my niche. Um, so yeah, I started, I started in retail, man, but I, I did, a, I did a lot with it. It was a great, it was a great career. Um, so yeah, I started in retail when I first got out of high school. And then when I got out of college, it was something that I was good at. Um, so it was a good way for me to just start making some money. So I, I went, I did retail for a while. Now, um, 
when when you got hired on with the county and you know they they paid for standards in the MT school and then you go through orientation once you're you've got all your certs correct um, in orientation did you have any type of leadership role um you're pretty tall what are you like six six five and a half I like to say six six it's easier if I round up so uh, <laughs> I just I just go with six six so you kind of um, stand out yes so I I I'm going to say this because I've been told by other people in my class is that, yes, they saw me as a leader, but um, no, I wasn't like the, 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 whatever you want to call it, of the class my, leader. Of my class leader or anything like that. No. <clears throat> okay. Um, and then when, when you finished orientation, <clears throat> I, I think I remember you got assigned to station 81. The, the old station 81. The old station 81, yeah. The Which was as busy. I mean, that was that was one of the busier stations. From dusk till dawn was your motto. Mm -hmm. um, you were there because you had sinned. That was <laughs> <laughs> and, and how many years did you spend there at 81? Um, I spent probably, and again, you know, a lot of people may or may not know this, but you begin to float after back, back then it was like three months. Um, you spent three months there and began to float, but I was in battalion five. So between 81, 63, um, 71 in that area, probably four or five years. I think I officially put in my transfer out of 81 when they moved into the big station. So again, whether people know or not, we went from this tiny little hunting cabin to like this huge core bay station right off of, you know, 417. And it was just too many people for me. I really enjoyed just the smaller team, you know, and um, so it just wasn't for me. Not that it was bad, it just wasn't for me. So I put in the transfer. Um, I wound up at 63 for a little while. And that was weird just because I was still floating every single shift. Um, so then after that, I put in for 71 and got 71 and then spent the rest of my career there until I got. Tell me a little bit about your leadership philosophy how you how you developed you know what were your influences that has shaped your leadership philosophy maybe some um some individuals that that influenced your uh your philosophy and um you know, so just... i'll give you a, a brief story right and I, and I think this might have been part part of the start for me um I said I was a retail junkie, right? I loved it. It was, it was, it was what I did. Um, when I moved back to Florida, this is when I first moved to Florida, I worked for CFI, right? And it was, uh, they pretty much own Westgate and all that nonsense. So I had an early morning job where I worked from like 7 a.m. to maybe 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And I just had a lot of time to kill. And I've always had two jobs. It's just what I do, again, from the influence from my father, I guess. I've always had two jobs. So I went back to what I knew, which was retail. And I was like, hey, I'll go get a job at the mall, you know, folding sweaters uh, in the afternoons. And Jen was her name, and she was the store manager at the time. And she hired me right there, which was no problem. After about three weeks, she comes up to me. And I worked, you know, from maybe 6 o'clock till 9, 10 o'clock till closing, folded up my little section and made sure it was good. And, and this is one of the things she told me. She goes, for a part-time employee, I've never seen anyone work so hard. And I told her, well, I just have pride in what I do. If someone comes in and looks at that table, for instance, 
I want them to be like, wow, that table looks better than the rest. A lot, maybe some of that is ego driven. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it may be, I think sometimes leadership, you know, you have to have some type of an ego. Uh, but again, like I said, we'll get into that later. So anyway, she was like, you're, you're really good at this. She goes, number one, she goes, number two, people gravitate towards you. And she goes, I've just noticed it since you've been here. People come to you and ask you for advice. People come to you and you know what I mean? They want to be around you. People want to work for you. And that's something that clicked for me. You know, even at that, you know, at that time, just being a part-time employee, make a long story short, Jen was the one that convinced me to leave uh, CFI and come work back for the Gap full-time as a store manager. Um, so I did that for a, a bunch of years before I got, you know, back into the fire service mindset. But again, I think that was the point of it. She said, people want to work for you. And I, I, th I thought that was huge. And I've always kept that in my mind as part of a, a, a background to my philosophy and leadership is people have to want to work for you. Now, how you get to that point, I think it's very different for different people. But I think at the end of the day, if you look at most leaders, people want to work for them. And I think that was huge. That, you know, that's, uh, that's right on point with a lot of what I teach is you know, people follow others because they believe that they're going to benefit in some way from having followed them. Either they're going to learn how to be better. There, there's some sort of improvement in, in the way they operate, their knowledge level, whatever, their, their success by following this individual. So in, in your mind, what was it about you that led people to gravitate towards you? Again, I hate talking about myself. It's really hard to do so. Um, but I think one of the things for me was I've always been the kind, and maybe you can attest to this and tell it a little bit better than I can, but I've always been the same person. I've always been a genuine person, right? I am the same guy today that I'm going to be tomorrow. So you always know what you're going to get. I think that's huge with leadership. I think people need to understand too, is you can learn good and bad traits from everybody, right? So I've had, you know, managers or lieutenants or whatever that I've learned just as much what not to do <laughs> that I've learned what to do, right? So I think one of the biggest things for me was I had to keep the thought process of you have to be the same every day. People have to trust you to, you to be able to lead them, right? And if one day I'm this, this mean, tough, you know what I'm saying, over-the-top guy, but the next day I'm this nice, calm, you know, they don't know who they're going to get, so they can't trust you. So I think that was a, a big part of it for me. As I said, I, I got to be consistent. And I think that was one, some of the things that draw people to want to work for me as Tim is consistent. He's always going to tell you the truth, whether it's good or bad, <laughs> right or wrong. I'm going to tell you, you did good. I'm going to tell you, you did bad. Um, uh, and I think that that's huge for people is they know what they're going to get every day. Every day I walk through the door. I, maybe, you know, the, the quote, but it struck me when you said consistent, uh, Derek Jeter uh, attributed his success to his consistency. He, he always came out, gave 100% in practice, always gave 100%. His diligence, it was his consistency that led to his success. You, 
know the quotes that I'm talking about? Not, not, not particularly, no. But Derek Jeter is definitely one of the most consistent <laughs> throughout his career. So absolutely. Um, I have read some stuff on Derek Jeter just because I'm a big Yankees fan. Um, and they do say he was like the first one in the clubhouse, the last one to leave. You know what I mean? Like he was that guy where if anyone had a problem, they could always say, well, listen, Derek has done it. This, you know what I mean? And, and he was that guy where they were like, no, no, no. This is the way it's done around here. And this is the way Derek does it. And it works. So let's just not done that way. So the other night, um, Isabella and I, my daughter, sat down. Uh, at, we had dinner, and then we sat down to watch this uh, documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it talks about how social media caters to whatever views or whatever, you know, you might follow certain uh, media sources and you'll click on certain links and the information that you're receiving is driven by what you want to read. It struck me as, you know, we're living in such a, a polarized time right now where people are divided, it seems, more than ever. And and it's difficult for individuals from opposing sides to have a conversation, a constructive conversation, because neither one of them is uh, consuming the same information. It was um, it was pretty eye-opening. Where I have certain political beliefs, and there's members of my family that have completely different views. And then getting into conversations with them can be very difficult and frustrating because these are people that I love. It's a family atmosphere at the, at the fire station. Mm -hmm. And there are individuals at the firehouse that have completely different views than, than you and I. Now, how do you how do you choose whether or not to engage in those conversations or to say, you know what, I've got something else to do and step away from the conversation? So going back to what and then again, well, I it's a great question. When we when I, I've watched something similar, it may be the same one. And not only do they only feed you information that is what you like, they also feed you things that you don't like to keep you angry. So the things that show up on your feed, they know that this is going to outrage you, right? And again, if you don't like, let's just say Black Lives Matter, right? Because that's a big thing right now. If you don't like the words, you don't like the way it's spoken, whatever, they are going to put stuff in your feed to keep you angry. And then what they're going to do is put stuff in your feed for people that also don't like those words, right? So you're getting it from both ends. This group is telling me everything that I want to hear because they think the way I do. And then on the other side, they're keeping me angry by feeding me the shit that I know makes me angry. So it's absolutely amazing how much we've pulled away from the center, right? And gone so polarizing with everything, you know? I remember growing up when it was about sports, it was fun, right? You're, you know, somebody could be a, I'm a Celtics fan, right? I know if I grew in New York, but I'm a Celtics fan and a Yankees fan. Don't make fun of me. Don't judge me. It is what it is. <laughs> so 
you know, and again, I remember growing up being a Yankees fan versus a Mets fan. Like it was, you know, yeah, the Yankees are the best. No, the Mets are the best, but we still love to watch baseball together. Right. right. And right now the country is, like you said, so split on both ends that we're missing that. Like we can still have a Yankees fan and a Mets fan, but we can still get together and enjoy a baseball game. Right. Right. Um, so how I feel about talking about that in the fire station is it depends on the individuals. Okay. Um, I just turned 44 the other day. Right. So I'm a little bit older. Uh, I'd say a little bit or a lot wiser. If you ask a lot of people from when I was 20, you know, when I was 24, um, so I think I can have a conversation with someone and if I feel it turning ugly or non-productive, I can end the conversation, right? So certain people can't do that. So yes, I've seen conversations at the fire station, uh, about polarizing subjects that I have to shut down. It's getting nasty. It's not being productive. So let's shut it down. And as a leader, that's something that you have to keep an eye on at, in your station. So you can't let things get, you know, fester and get out of control. Um, but if you find someone, and I do have friends who grew up completely differently than I did. I mean, you know, I grew up, I have uh, uh, a black father, obviously, black brothers, uncles, aunts, um, you know, some are cops, you know what I mean? So I, I grew up in that, that atmosphere. I have a different perspective on life than someone that might have grown up in Idaho. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if we can get together and have a conversation about our differences with an understanding, because we have a mutual respect for each other already, I think that can be a good conversation. I think part of the problem with the polarizingness of it is people aren't allowed or don't take the opportunity to get together and hear the other person out. You can have a different perspective on something that I can. And if we listen and empathize with each other, we can have a good conversation. If I only surround myself with people who think and believe like I do, how will I ever grow as a human being? Right. Right. So, and, and I think that's another great part of leadership is being able to grow as a human being. And I think part of that growth for me was being able to say, hey, listen, this guy doesn't understand. Well, I don't want to say understand, but this guy doesn't, we're just different but we can still have a conversation and have some type of a common ground. So again, it depends on the individuals. The conversation at the fire station is, is based on the individuals having the conversation. But as a leader or, or lieutenant engineer, whoever, you also have to have the ability when you see it going left or to real quick say, listen, I don't mean left as in left and right politically. I mean bad. <laughs> if it starts to go bad, you gotta let them know, like, listen, this has gotta stop. End the conversation, talk about something else. I'm sure. The, the Black Lives Matter conversation, actually, I know it is because I've had different conversations with, with people uh, regarding this. And I think in the fire service, firefighters have a different relationship with, with cops, with law enforcement. We see what, they, um, what they're up against a lot of times. We, we understand a lot of their training, how a lot of times their experience in, in rougher neighborhoods and uh, their training on how to defend themselves, you know, can lead to very quick decisions that may not be the best decisions. Now, some of it may be driven by prejudice. Some of it may just be fear. Now, 
and I would imagine you've had conversations regarding regarding the uh, the media coverage on Black Lives Matter. Absolutely, lots of conversations. Some productive, some not. But yes, lots of conversations. Well, can can you give me some insight? Maybe give me an example of a conversation or two. So I, I think what I like to tell people right away when these conversations start is to, again, I use, I use the word empathy, right? Because you can't tell me what it's like, right? And I think that's what a lot of people are doing right now. They're telling me, again, 44 years old, grew up in the Bronx, right? I've had times in my life where I've had plenty of money and I've had times in my life where I've had no money. Like literally when I was in fire standards and you can ask any of the guys, they would be going to lunch. I would sit there with a can of corn because you could buy 10 cans for $5, right? And a can of peas and I'd open my can, I'd dump it, I'd freaking put it in the microwave and that's what I would eat for lunch. Like, I mean, so I, and now, you know, I, I live pretty, pretty good, right? So I know what it's like not to have and I know what it's like to have, right? So I grew up in the Bronx. Now I live in central Florida. Um, again, my father is a black man. My brother is a black man. My grandfather is a black man. I have uncles who are black men who are law enforcement, right? So don't tell me what my story is. You can't do that. You just, you just can't, right? So I think that's where the conversation has to start. A lot of people are telling me, well, what do you know about it? How have you been in justice? Look at you. Look at your, look at your golf clubs, right? Look at you. You play golf twice a week. Like, what do you know about injustice? And I think that was the first thing that the whole conversation started off bad is because, and if we go all the way back to Colin Kaepernick, they were like, dude, you're a millionaire. Like, what do you know about injustice? Right? And, and I think that was the first thought. And I'm like, it started off on the wrong foot because people never understood. You know what? It's not about me. It's not always about me, but it is about my nephew who I have to have a conversation with. You know what I'm saying? So I think that the key in it, you know, to go back to the, the original thought process was people have to understand, you can't tell me what my life experience is. You can't, you can't, you can't negate that. And that's what people are doing. They're negating the fact of what my life experience is, right? I have been pulled over because I fit the description. You know what the description was? A young black male in jeans and a sweatshirt. In New York City, <laughs> that is 90% of the population, right? So again, I was just pulled over because of, you know what I mean? And so I, I've been there. I've done that, right? Yes, my parents had the conversation. When you get pulled over, your hands are at 10 and 2 and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Those are conversations that young white men don't have to have with their sons. And there, there is a big difference. And I tell people all the time is Dylan Roof, right? And, and we can go deep, deep down this rabbit hole, but we'll try not to. Uh, Dylan Roof killed multiple people in a church while they were praying, right? So he walks into this Bible study. Uh, they're in there. They're elderly black men and women. They're praying. They're, they're, they're preaching. They're, they're talking about the Bible. Kills them. Kills them all dead, right? He gets taken out for lunch, right? When they left there, they took him to get a burger. Then you have Tamir Rice, young black child, right? In an empty park with a toy gun within seconds of that cop pulling up, putting his car in park, 
he pulled out a gun and shot that kid dead, right? There are life experiences that some people have to go through and some don't, and that is a fact, right? So for you to say that, not you personally, but for someone to say that that's just not true, your life is okay, life isn't that bad, I think that's where the disconnect comes in. And until people understand, like, listen, you can't tell me my life experience, then it's going to be very hard to have a conversation. You know, I, you know, you, you made a, a, a very good point. The, the conversation that, that I've had, well, that my dad had with me, you know, I was kind of a punk growing up and, I was educated that, you know, if I'm ever pulled over, you know, you say yes, sir, no, sir, you roll down your window, um, don't make any sudden movements, that sort of thing, and you'll be fine. But there was never any escalation to that, like, you know, if you don't do that, they're going to rip you out of your car and grind your face in the pavement or anything like that it was you know just this is how you behave if you ever get pulled over i think the big difference is is, and and this is the conversation that was had with me is you are perceived as a suspect or a threat right and that's the difference so i get pulled over and i listen and this is not i said i have law enforcement in my family 98 percent just like there are bad firemen out there there are bad cops out there right but the overwhelming majority are awesome excellent amazing outstanding people who we love and respect and have nothing but the utmost admiration for right What my parents always told me is you are perceived as a suspect or a threat, especially with my stature, right? You know what I mean? Being 6'6", at 1.230 something pounds, like you're a threat and you have to be seen that way. Now, if you take the same guy, same neighborhood, but give him a different skin color, he's neither. He's being pulled over because he was speeding. Right. Right. So I, I, I think that's where the, the difference is. And a lot of people still shake their head. People are gonna see this, they're gonna read this, and they're gonna be like, that's just not true. But again, that's you telling me what my experience is. <laughs> you right. can't do that. It doesn't, we can't, we can never have a conversation if you don't, if you continue to tell me what my life story is. Right. Well, the experiences that I've had. Tell me about, um, you know, you said something about having a conversation with your nephew. Is that essentially how it went? Can you? Yeah, you know, and so I have three nephews. Um, one of them is 16, 17 years old now. Um, I have a four-year-old nephew and I have like a one-year-old nephew. I know, it's crazy. Don't even ask. Crazy. Uh, both sides. So anyway, my nephew is probably 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, um, he's a football player, so he's in pretty, pretty good shape for his size. And I think between me and my brother, we have had to let him know that they're not all bad, right? There are some bad ones out there, but they're not all bad, okay? But you have to protect yourself 
because you don't know which is which, right? Initially, when you get pulled over, you don't know if this is gonna be one of the good ones who just wants to give you a speeding ticket or one of the bad one who's perceived you as a threat, right? You just don't know until you get into that conversation. So, you know, we just tell him like, listen, I, I hate the thought of comply or die, right? And that's what we've gotten to in society right now. Everyone just says, well, comply, comply, comply. And if you comply, everything will be okay. But that's not what the police officer's there for, right? His job is not to say, he's not to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner, right? right. His job is to be, the, you know what I mean? The, the law enforcement officer. I am here to enforce the law. And if that means arresting you, if that means putting you in handcuffs and putting you in jail, whatever the case may be. But when the law enforcement officer becomes the jury, I think that's when we have a problem in society. And we're seeing it more and more and more. It's not that these things haven't happened before. It's just they're being videotaped now, right? So before, when people said this was happening, everyone was like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no proof, you know? And now when we're actually seeing it and people are like, oh shit, this actually happens, but we better keep denying it because if not, like, we're in a world of hurt. So I, I think until we get to the stage that of the not stop denying it you know, and say, listen, these things happen. Um, what can we do to make it better? You know, again, we can go down this rabbit hole really, really deep, but to become a law enforcement officer, right? You need how many years of training, right? Months, weeks, right? So to give someone a gun and a badge and tell them you are now a law enforcement officer and you have the ability to choose someone's life or death, how can you give them weeks of training, right? Just logically, that doesn't make sense to me, right? So, and, and again, I've done my research on this. I've spoken to officers, young, old, black, white, they will tell you, they get zero hand-to-hand -hand combat training, right? You get one or two days where you learn how to flip someone over or grab, no. Like to me, that, if I'm, the, if I'm an officer, I want, all the training. I want to learn Krav Maga. I want to learn arms tactics. I want to learn, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, jujitsu. Like I want it all because I don't want my gun to be the first thing that I go to, right? I want to be able to subdue a subject from what I've learned. And again, I think until we do a better job of training, and this goes with, uh, and again, not sitting here picking on police officers. Again, like I said, family, friends, 98% of them are amazing people. Um, but they'll tell you that they just don't get enough training when it comes to de-escalation, when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand combat, when it comes to, you know, what do you do when this happens? And again, that comes down to money and funding and, and, and everything else. And that's a whole other conversation. But I think until we get that straightened up, it's still going to be a, a long road for, for a lot of people. Now, if you're, if you're comfortable going into it, um, I've had a couple of conversations on here couple of different interviews where we discussed, um, you know, forms of misogyny in the fire service. And, um, you know, the, the numbers of women that are coming into the fire service are greater than they, they have been in the past. Uh, still, there's, um, if you look at different occupations that are very similar to, to the fire service as far as education requirements and you know the the manual labor involved with with doing the job um 
there are more women in those other occupations than there are in the fire service. And some of it tends to lean towards just the culture in the fire service. Kind of a, you know, a macho, male-dominated field. Um, you know, you're living a third of your life with these individuals, 24-hour shifts most of the time, and close quarters. There's, and, and some people may know, but other others m may not be familiar with the term, you know, dark humor. And, you know, when we're running, um, you know, 10 to sometimes 30 calls a shift within a 24-hour period of time, and seeing a lot of bad stuff seeing the worst that society has to has to offer the the evils that that people can do to one another and a lot of times uh, <clears throat> a defense mechanism that we all learn is that you know learning how to joke about it to to lighten the mood because if you don't say or do something you get consumed by, you know, what you just saw. So, you know, you have that dark humor. Um, and then, I mean, I've experienced it when I've been on crews where there aren't any women. And, you know, we, we joke around, you know, sometimes jokes that, you wouldn't say around your sister or your mother, you know. Um, now, when a woman comes into the station, it changes that dynamic. Right, wrong, or indifferent, it does. And human nature is we don't like change. Now, you and I have had some conversations about women at the station, and Early on in my career, I know that I had uh, a viewpoint of, and I can tell you that it was definitely learned. I mean, I had heard it in the fire academy from instructors. You know, women have ruined the fire service. You know, it's not like it used to be, blah, blah, blah. And I, started my full-time career with, with Orange County, and there, there weren't a lot of women. And um, there was always the talk of, oh my gosh, man, you know, you gotta work with her. You know, stuff like that. And um, it wasn't until later on where I actually had the benefit of working with some really strong, competent women. And it wasn't like a sudden light bulb went off. It was, oh, they're one of the good ones. And it took a little while. It took uh, like a little tune-up job from one of my friends uh, to let me know gender isn't a determining factor on an indiv individual's uh, ability to be successful in the job, you know, be proficient, that sort of thing. And I, I just, 
I know that you've had some experiences and I know you have your own viewpoints and whatever you're comfortable with sharing, um, I, I think could, could shed a little bit of light on the subject. I, I think it's, I, I look at it and maybe this isn't, I, maybe, this is the way I look at it, right? Most women don't want to be firemen. Right. Like, like you said, think about the, think about what we do. Right. We put on this and, and I'm not saying women can't do it. Please don't anyone look at this or listen to this and be like, Oh, he said women can't do the job. That is not what I'm saying at all. Can, can I play devil's advocate for a, a second? So say 40 years ago, there was probably a lot fewer African-American men in the fire service. Absolutely. And if you had been told that, well, the reason that there aren't more African-American men in the fire service is because they just don't want to do the job. What would you have said? Or what would you say now if that was the argument? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good point, but you'd have to prove that to me. Right. You, you, there'd have to be a way you'd have to say, okay, let me see the applications. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, is it truly that they're just not applying? Right. I, I think we can, I think we can both honestly say that women are just not applying to the fire department. But they're, I, but they're going to other career fields where it's very similar in education requirements and, and, you know, the, the manual labor involved, you know? I think some of it though is, again, like you mentioned, the, the, the close quarters, right? Most women or most women's husbands <laughs> are, are going to be apprehensive when they say, hey, listen, you guys need to all sleep together in a 400 square foot space, right? You use this, granted, we have women's and men's showers, but it's all very close quarters, right? So I believe that there's always been this thing that, you know, and again, a lot of women want to be mothers. So when you're a mother, it's very hard to stay away from home for 24 hours, right? You do an overtime shift, you're gone for 48 hours, you know, and I, I'm sure it's hard for fathers too, but obviously, you know, mothers have that different intuition, especially when they're infants or newborns. But I just honestly believe that there aren't a ton of women applying to the fire service, right? Um, if you do, you, do you think it could be because it's, um, and th this is one of my thoughts on the subject is it could be because maybe there are experiences with other women that have gone into the fire service and left, mm -hmm. have shared their experiences. And maybe, you know, there, there is this culture of, you know, this is more of a, a man's job. I'm sure that's part of it too. Absolutely. Because I mean, you I would want, don't with, want it to they, they, and I'm not saying all, I just, again, we can look at the applications, right? If we ever really wanted to dig deep into this, we could actually find the data. I'm sure it's out there to say how many women are applying for the fire department to become firemen, how many? And I'm sure the numbers are very, very small. I could be wrong, but I would assume the numbers are, are, are very, very small. No, and 
and that is very uh, i mean that that parallels to other career fields that you know have similar requirements as the fire service but they actually have higher numbers and it's um so i know that you've worked with a lot of women in, in your time in the fire service and um We've had this conversation before where we we both have come to the conclusion that gender isn't the determining factor. You know? no, there have been there have been good and there have been bad, right? And that's just with everything else, right? And we can go down the list and say, you know, whatever however you want to break down the demographic. Um, but yes, absolutely. I've worked with some amazing women who, you know, and I I don't know appropriate to throw names out there but there are some women out there that i work with any day of the week right absolutely any day of the week hands down and i'm not talking just work with like i'm talking as my lieutenant as my battalion chief as my assistant chief like these are women whom i trust 100 they're amazing right there are also men that i've worked for that i would never work for again that are horrible lieutenants that are horrible battalion chiefs right and so no gender is not a determining factor on your skill set or, or how good you are at this job no not not at all not at all and, people want to come in and be better than they were yesterday at the end of the day right at the end of the day what do you bring to the fire department right it's not about you coming in and collecting a paycheck and whatever what do you bring and, and it doesn't matter what demographic you want to use as long as you bring that to the fire department, I don't, I don't care what your demographic is. Now, would you agree that women do get treated differently than men when they, when they come into the, the fire department? I, I think yes, but I don't want to say that it's just women. I think a lot of people, I think when you first come into the fire department, until you've proven that you can be trusted, it's kind of hard. You know what I mean? Even me as, and I was, 20 something, it was in mid twenties, right? I was in amazing shape. Uh, I, I was young back then. I was in pretty good shape back then, right? Um, I, was, I was educated. I had multiple jobs. I still had to prove myself, you know? I didn't just walk in and people go, that guy's gonna be great, right? Cause just cause of my physical stature. I still had to prove myself. Absolutely. So, so until you prove, and that's just the way the fire department is. Until well, you prove yourself, you are just, you're, you're looked at differently. You are treated differently. You are not part of the team. You are not part of the crew until you prove yourself. And I know when, uh, when you came in, that program, the non-cert program was new. So when you hit the field. I had a whole different, I had a whole different cloud over my head. Yeah. Right. They looked at me as, oh, this was given to you. Right. Yeah. And that to me is one of the, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Right. But as, as a non-cert, which was a pretty new program, right? When we first did the non-cert program, I literally took my test at the Central Florida Fairgrounds. Thousands, not exaggerating, thousands of people sitting in there taking a written test. They took 20 something of us, right? So to me, we whittled down from thousands to 20 something, that's not given anything. No yeah. one gave me anything, right? And then after that, I still had to go to EMT school and pass. 
I still had to go to the same fire standards. Listen, when people talk shit about the non-cert program, I tell them, where did you go to get your standards from? Central Florida Fire Academy. Guess where I got my standards from? Central Florida Fire Academy, right? So we're no different. So, so stop. That is the hugest problem. Well, not huge, but to me, that is a problem that we have in the fire department where people try to put the non, and that's just a society thing, right? Everyone wants to put someone against someone else, right? We're going to put the non-certs against the certified. You know what the difference is? You went to school at a different time than I went to school. The only difference. Yeah. We both went to the same school. We both had to become certified firemen, period. Right. And if anything, all you had to do was fill out an application. I had to fight 2000 other people to get my spot. Yeah. So. But yes, I was treated differently. Absolutely. Absolutely treated differently. So, and I, and, you know, I hate to say it's just women when they come into the fire service, but I think it's everyone. I, I think that first few weeks, that first few months, you're, you're treated differently. I don't know what I can say around you. And this goes for men, women, black, white. It doesn't matter. I don't know what I can say. That dark humor that we speak of, right? I don't know what I can say around you just yet. So no, yeah, you are treated a little bit differently. People are a little quieter around the fire station the first couple of days someone new was there. It's not as much banter. It's not as much fun because yeah, we're like, listen, I don't know this guy yet. And until they can prove to me that they can be trusted, I got to watch what I say. Yeah. Now, one thing that I, again, if you're comfortable talking about it, we all, everybody, it's, it's part of life. We all make mistakes. We all have failures. One of the things that, uh, through a lot of my reading and research um, on, on history's greatest leaders, you know, you'll find that something that, that isn't written about a lot is the failures that those great leaders experienced. And a lot of times you can attribute those great failures to their, their coming successes. You know, those failures shaped, you know, how they operate, the, they learned lessons. They um, they proved to themselves that they're tougher than maybe they thought they were. They they proved to themselves and and others that they're resilient. That they don't give up. Now, if you're comfortable talking about it, it um, you know, I'd be curious to find out what maybe one of your biggest failures either professionally or personally something that maybe shaped how you operate now a, a lesson that maybe you um could share that would help others avoid the same the same pitfall i don't know man that's a that's a tough question not that i don't you know i mind talking about it but it's i and not that i don't have failures personally and uh professionally but I'd really have to think and say, like, what is like a, a, one of my worst failures? I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I do want to tell you a story, though, before I forget. And this does kind of go with what you're saying about, you know, about failures is we were on a call one day. And you may or may not remember this, right? It was at Stonebridge Apartments, where people don't know that is literally 
uh, stone's throw from Station 71 to where the apartments are. It was a dumpster fire, right? The dumpster was on fire. Again, I had been, at the time, I had been at 71 the longest, besides Kerry Veneer, but you were a new lieutenant there. Henderson was a new engineer there. Um, so I knew the area better at the time. We get there on this dumpster fire. You tell me to put water in a certain area. As the lieutenant, that's what you do, right? I'm putting water on this area, and I tell you, I go, LT, there's a brick wall around this dumpster. I am not putting water on the fire. And of course, you can't see it at the time. It's dark, dark at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, dark billowing smoke everywhere, right? And I'm telling you, I'm not putting water on the fire. I know that we're on the wrong side of this dumpster. And you, again, us not knowing each other very well at the time, you being the lieutenant, me being a fireman, you actually told me, I don't know, I don't know the exact words you used, but you told me to keep putting water where you had me putting water, right? Eventually, we both see and everyone sees that the fire's not going out. Uh, we reposition, we make the, we make the necessary changes, uh, we put the water where it needs to go and the fire goes out, right? So my first impression or one of my first impressions of you as a leader was, you know, who does this guy think he is, right? One of, again, I, and I told myself, here we go. I have a leader who doesn't want to listen, right? I have a leader who is not willing to take input from people who have been here longer. So again, I'm really down on myself, right? I'm down on myself because I'm like, this is not what I need in my career at this point. I need someone in my career who is going to make me better at what I do, right? Make a very long story short, after everything is wrapped up, uh, we make the necessary adjustments, we clean everything up, we go back to the station. Not only do you apologize to me, but you apologized in front of everyone. That was a huge influence on my life, on my life, not just in the fire service, not just as a man to man, but in my life, because I said this man humbled himself enough to not only realize he made a mistake, but not to apologize to me privately. That's what a lot of people do, right? They, and they, they still get to save face that way. Oh, I apologized, right? But no one else saw me do it. So I still get to save face. No, in front of everyone, you said you were wrong. You made a mistake. Huge, huge influence, like I said, on my life to be the kind of person who would say, not only have I made a mistake, but I need to let everyone else know that I've made this mistake. Right, and this is how I go about fixing it and rectifying it. Um, just wanted to make sure I got that story out before we finished. And uh, when you talk about making mistakes, like that's the stuff that I learned from. Right, uh, one of the leaders that I admire the most made a mistake. He apologized for it, and he did it in front of other people, which was huge. Um, so as far as like, I, I, you, you know, what's funny is that I, I do, I do remember that fire. I, I don't remember apologizing to you. I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I don't remember apologizing to you, but I remember feeling like a douchebag. No, you, you, you did. You absolutely 100% did. You know, so again, not to change the subject, but one of my biggest things, and I, and I have it written down somewhere, is I go, is leadership something you do or, or something you are? 
right? And I don't remember where I heard it or where I got it from, but is it something you do or is it something, or, or is it who you are, right? So for you to even say, listen, I don't even remember apologizing, it's because it's who you are, right? That means you've done this before, right? It's happened, you've made a mistake, you've went to someone and apologized for it. If it's just something you do, then yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? It's just something I do. It's, it's, it, it, well, when it's who you are, that's the key to me, right? So it, it, it's the person you are. It's not just something you do, which is key. Um, something, something pretty simple. Um, and, and it's definitely a, a mistake that I've made that I always tell people. I am a professional fire engine driver, right? What I do. Um, I was one of those people who as soon as I could learn to drive the fire engine, I wanted to. My mother tells the story from when I was a child of fire trucks going by. And I'm like, I want that. Like I wanted as a kid, like not even, a, I want that. I want one of those. Like I want to be able to drive that. I'm going to drive that someday. Right. And that's what I do now. Right. I drive fire trucks for a living. That is my profession. Um, I tend to think I'm very good at it most of the time, but you want to talk about failures. I've gotten that engine stuck at least three times. <laughs> And, and, and I mean, uh, one of them, I think we dug out on our own. The other two, we had to have towed, okay? One of them was in the middle of 417, right? So the traffic cam was on me. Uh, traffic, there was, an auto, there was an accident, and we don't need to get into the whole story, but there was an accident. So traffic was backed up, right? So and, for people listening, 417 oh, is yeah. a major toll road. Major toll road, like six lanes, three lanes on each side, major toll road. Traffic backed up on both sides and me trying to take a shortcut, I got stuck in the median, right? So the, the thing is, again, I have a great leader now, right? My, my lieutenant is amazing. Um, I was so down on myself. Like I wanted to go home, right? Because I felt, and it, and it wasn't just the embarrassment it was, it was everything. Like my head wasn't even right, right? I was so upset with myself. I was so embarrassed for him. You know what I mean? Like I, I, he's got a lot of explaining to do. You know what I'm saying? So I let him down. I let my crew down. I let myself down. Um, and I beat myself up over that one for, for a long time. Um, Again, no harm, no foul. Tow truck came, pulled us out. Just had to, you know, again, a little bit of mud on the tires, sprayed them off. It was fine. No, no harm, no foul. Nothing broke. Nobody died. Um, but yeah, that that to me was was a hard one, a hard one to swallow. Uh, I had an, an, another one professionally. Uh, one of my first, one of my first house fires, riding up as a lieutenant. Um, I had a brand new fireman riding backwards and okay, backwards. so let me let me ex explain something because not sure but maybe there's people that aren't familiar with the fire service okay. the the rank structure oh, okay. is firefighters then you have the driver the the driver operator the engineer then you have the lieutenant or in some uh departments it's a captain that that is the company officer um and so the engineer is second in command of, of the crew. And there are times when if the lieutenant is on vacation or out sick, or maybe they're riding in a different capacity, a higher rank, 
the engineer um, can move over and ride as the, the company officer and they, they get paid an incentive to, to be in that position. You have to go through additional training to be able to, um, and a checkoff process to be able to be qualified to ride in that seat. So you, as, as the lieutenant, you're, you're in that seat and go ahead. Uh, I'll, let me take a step back to the other story real quick since while you were talking, I thought about this. Um, I had to eat that as far as me making the mistake of trying to make take that meeting, right? It was wet. It had been raining. It, it, it's in a dip. Like, you know, as, and I go back and think of all the things that I should have, you know what I mean, thought of before I made the decision. Um, but I had to eat that, right? And to me, that's another great part of leadership is just accepting it. Like, listen, I made a, I made a mistake. I will never do it again, right? But I, and I made a mistake. Um, but I, I, but I had to eat that, right? I had to go around and, and of course, you know, everyone, and, and another thing about the fire service that, that, that again, if we could change the culture would be really cool is so many people are quick to point out each other's flaws, right? And, and I don't know what that comes from. If that comes from, I'm better than you because you made a mistake or whatever the case may be. Um, but that's something else we, that we need to do, man. We, we love beating up on each other when we make a mistake, which is, which is crazy. That's whole other stuff that. So get back to the other one. Uh, there was a, a fire. I had a brand new fireman riding backwards and I had a brand new guy who had just learned to ride up as an engineer. So this person was driving me. I was the lieutenant. I was, there was a fireman there. Make a very long story short, it was a house fire. Things could have went better. Um, and I learned a lot from that. And I'm gonna, at the very end of it, I think what makes leaders also leaders is we also seek out our mistakes to learn from them, right? So after that fire was over, I seek out people whom I trusted to ask what could I have done differently, right? Um, and I did, I, I, and I reached out to one of the battalion chiefs that was there and, 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 and I stopped him and we sat down and we, we actually sat in his car, you know, in the battalion chief's vehicle and we talked for about 30 minutes, you know, and, and he didn't, you know, beat me up or anything like that. He was just like, listen, this is, these are the things that make you better is next time, maybe do this sooner or next time, maybe do that. And I think that's, that's awesome to have that type, you know, of leadership where you can go to someone and say, listen, help make me better. And they want you to be better and they listen and they give you the advice that you need um, and give you the confidence to, to do a better job. I've had, I've had, I've had definitely had some failures in the fire department, man. Absolutely. Where I've made some, some mistakes. Um, but I always try to take those failures and learn from them. I seek out the individuals that I trust and I go, this is what happened. You know, what, what can I do better? How can I not, you know, how can I not, I don't want to say make the same mistakes, but you know, how can I, how can I avoid these pitfalls? What can I do? What can I do? Better? Yeah, there, there's a saying in the fire service, um, telegraph, telephone, tell a firefighter. Yeah. Oh yeah. So when people, on the department, make mistakes, have failures. It doesn't take long for that to spread. No, not at all. Sometimes by the time it gets to the other side of the department, it's embellished. Um, but by and large, you know, you get a, a sense of what occurred. Now, you've been on for 17 years now, you know, throughout your, your career, I'm sure you've been privy to, to some pretty good mistakes that people have made. 
You know, is there anything that, that stands out to you that just by having become aware of that uh, mistake, that failure, you were able to take a lesson from that and, and maybe change how you operate personally? Um, say that again. Can you rephrase that question so I understand a little better? Are there, are there any mistakes or failures that you've become aware of that, that helped you? Like maybe you didn't know, okay, if I do this, this is going to happen. Okay. And so by learning from that, now you operate on a, on a higher plane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to what, you know, kind of what I alluded to before is you can learn from any experience, right? I've mm -hmm. learned just as much from bad lieutenants as I've learned from good lieutenants. Cause with the bad ones, I've learned exactly what not to do. Right. I'm like, I am not doing that. Not going to happen. Um, so I, I think too, that I, I've seen people make mistakes and I've, I had to learn this too. This is a learn, this is a learned behavior. To, to not point out people's mistakes or their flaws or, or point the finger at them and go, oh, look how bad you messed up. You know what I mean? I, I think that's something that is detrimental. Um, it, it doesn't serve anyone. No one learns a, a, a lesson from that. Now that's not to say where if you're making mistakes, I'm not going to correct you, right? Like you, you, you still have to learn. So if you make a mistake, I'm like, hey, you know, this is what you did, this is what you did wrong. And yeah, if you keep making a mistake two, three, four times, then yes, the, the conversation begins to change. Um, but I, I think the key is, you know, acknowledging that people make mistakes, uh, trying to fix that mistake, let them know why they went wrong, how they went wrong, and then trying to get them to, uh, to, to fix it or to do better. Yeah, because a lot of times, and, and, I, and I believe this, that when people make mistakes, when people have failures, I, I don't think they're... They're not doing it because they want to do a bad job. There, there's a level of ignorance or a lack of training or firefighting and law enforcement. A lot of times you're making decisions based on very little information and you're, you're having to make those decisions very rapidly. Very quickly. Yep. And if you lack the experience or the exposure to a similar event, your ability to, to determine the right path to take it is, is very small. You know, your, your, your decision-making ability is diminished. So the chances of you making a mistake, it's greater. So and when somebody talking about before is the fact that you have to be, you have to be enough of a man and a leader to, to listen to other people right? Because this person may have a little bit more knowledge on this subject at this time. That doesn't mean you're not the lieutenant. That doesn't mean you're not as good as this person. That just happens to mean that right now, this kid knows about roofing because his father's a roofer and he's helped his father put on hundreds of roofs. So when he tells you, you see that crease right there, that is not good. <laughs> Listen to this kid. He, you know what I mean? And I, and I think that's, that's exactly, you know, what you're saying is, you, you know, some people have experience that you don't, and you better draw from that experience. If not, you're, you're, you're going to fail. And well, from the perspective that I was coming from is more, 
along the lines of a supervisor, when, when you have people on your crew or, or people in your battalion or, or when they make mistakes, maybe try not to jump to the conclusion that discipline is required. Maybe you can use this as a learning opportunity. Let me, let me use this opportunity to develop this person and you know, I can, I can correct them in private and I can kind of maybe coach them into bringing that, that failure forward in front of the group so that other people can learn from it. Because if, if one person makes that mistake, how many others just haven't been in that position to, to make the same mistake? Is there, is there anything, you know, any topic on leadership or, or leadership development that, you know, or maybe lessons learned by you that we haven't touched on that, you know, is important to you to share? I think, um, I think the one thing that I said before, is it, is it what you do or is it who you are, right? And, and, I, and I'll give you a story, right? If you, if you teach someone to do something, let's say it's as simple as taking apart a saw, right? So we're going to learn about this chainsaw today, right? We're going to take this chainsaw apart. We're going to put it back together. And I've seen the way that you've done it before. And I look at this and I go, well, yeah, you did it. And you took it apart and you put it back together, but you didn't clean the bolt before you put it back on. Or when you had that side cover off, why didn't you clean inside the side cover before you put it back on, right? So we take it back apart. We go over all these things. I show you how to do it correctly. You do it correctly. Two or three weeks go by. I look at the saw. Still pretty good, which means you're still doing it correctly. A couple more weeks go by. I look at the saw not quite as good as the last couple of times we did it. A couple of weeks go by, I look at the saw and it's back to the way you were doing it before we had the conversation. Those are the people to me that are the hardest to lead, right? Because it's not in them. It's not who they are. To them, they are doing a good job, right? It's not up to maybe my standard and that's always what that person points at. They go, Tim, but that's your standard. Right? Why do I have to live up to your or someone else's standard? This is good. I took it apart. The bolts work. The chain works. What's the problem? Right? Those are the hardest ones I have a problem with because they don't want to get better. They're okay with being where they are. Um, so again, it goes back to, like I said, is it something you just do? Did they just do that because I was standing there? Did they just do it because I told them to? But it's not who they are. Because three, four, five weeks down the line, it went back to being a shitty job. Um, so that's one. I, I, did, I did jot some things down because I knew uh, there were some things that I definitely wanted to say that I well, wanted. To well, before about. you get into that, on that topic, yeah, because, because when you're in a leadership role, there, there are always going to be those individuals that feel like their standard is good enough and you just have you know, abnormal expectations. Right. So how do you motivate them? Great question. I don't know. 
I've, and I've been seeking that answer, right? I've spoken to a, a lot of people whom, um, whom I trust and respect. And it's been very, it's been very difficult. You know, some people, and listen, what are the old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but can't make them drink. <laughs> you know, as silly as that sounds, I think sometimes you have to say like, listen, this is who this individual is, right? As much as I'd like to motivate this person, as, as much as I'd like to bring them to a, you know, to a different level, like if they don't want to be there, if it's not who they are, right? It, what do you do? You, you know, sometimes I read something the other day too, and it said, why do we always try to fix people's flaws, right? We go through life saying, hey, if you're a great baseball player, right? And you can't hit a curveball, but you do everything else great. Why do we only focus on you learning to hit the curveball, right? Why don't we say, dude, this guy's an amazing fastball hitter. He's an amazing fielder. He's a, he, he does everything else right. Why don't we just make those things that he's already good at even better, right? As a society, we don't do that. We find the person's flaw and we go, we need to fix that flaw. So what I try to do when I have an individual like that is I try to find something that they're good at, give them all the opportunity to be really good at that, and then maybe slowly I can start to pull them over and get them to be that good with other things. But maybe try developing them from where they are, from what they're good at, and then move it from there. Yeah, and that's awesome. I, I actually have never thought of it that way. I'll um, give you the book. It's actually pretty, pretty good book. One, one thing that, um, one thing that I, I have studied is emotional intelligence and how um how to connect with people and and how to motivate individuals that you know they seem to lack that that gene you know the the ability to be motivated by normal means and and i haven't well i can say that i have had a couple of opportunities to employ that and and it was effective is getting to learn that individual's uh, motivations getting to learn you know what it is that they they want out of the position that they're in and tying what you want them to do to their version of success what that requires is getting to know that individual like talking to them and and actually listening, listening a lot more than you're talking, you know, asking open-ended questions to just really pull out. Because sometimes, it, I mean, it might take months of yeah. working with somebody on shift, getting to know them to figure out what drives them and, and figuring out some way to tie in the, the standard that you, that you want them to meet with the saw, which that attention to detail ties into so many other things. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. you know, but, and, and Jocko, uh, Jocko has a, a good quote and I'm about to butcher it because I don't have it memorized very well, but it, it's something to the effect of if what you're doing as a leader is not working, 
but you continue to do the same thing, but just get louder, more angry, you know, more pointed, it's still not going to work. <laughs> You're going to start to push this person away. And, and to me, that was huge. Like that was, you know, cause again, I'm like, wow, that just, that just makes so much sense. And, and that's exactly it, man. Sometimes you have to change your style. Sometimes you're know, like, this style does not work with this guy right? I need to figure something else out. Me continuing to get mad and pushing my style harder is not going to change, you know, where this person's at. So you sometimes got to change the style. All right. So back to, yeah, let me see. Uh, hopefully I, it's not too far away. Um, so I had the pleasure of going to the engineers academy. So basically like I said, if people don't know, you have, once you become the rank of engineer from fireman to engineer, uh, Orange County sends you to an engineer academy. And during those couple of weeks, you learn different things about pumping, you learn different things about leadership skills. Um, I had the ability to teach in one of these classes, right? To teach new engineers how to become great engineers. And while I was given that, you know, I had sat down and, you know, they were asking me, you know, certain things like what, what works for you? What, what's this, what's that? And I came up with these lists of things that I had them, you know, just kind of jot down so whenever they had a problem, they could go back and, and look at these. Um, so a couple of things that I mentioned to them in this class, because again, they were just asking like, what are some, you know, if I, if they could just take away some points, right? Of course I had a bunch of them, but I'm like, if you guys could just take some things away, you know, that you can refer to when you need help is, uh, the first thing that I told them is be humble, right? As a leader, you have to be humble. And I'll tell a quick story. I was down there teaching saws one day to the new recruits and we're going through some saw stuff. And this kid is just kind of sitting there and kind of disinterested and, and really not paying attention. Um, and, and I kind of call him out in front of the class being a little bit, uh, probably, I was a little bit stern with him. And, I, I'm, and finally I'm asking like, what is your deal? Come to find out that he had some type of lawn service and had worked for still for, you know what I mean? And, and knew this saw a hundred times better than I did, right? So it's not that he was saying what I was doing was wrong, but he just had other things he could add to the conversation. And him being in a recruit class, he didn't know the appropriate way to approach it. So he just kind of sat back and was disinterested. But being humble, I told like, hey, come on up here, man. Like, I'm gonna go sit down. I'm gonna have you teach this class. You have better knowledge at this than I do right? And I'm okay. This kid's a 20 something year old kid. Maybe, maybe not even 21 yet, right? He's a recruit. I've been here 15, 16 years, but I was humble enough to say, listen, you know more than I do on this subject, right? So be humble. Uh, take criticism. If you guys want to uh, write some of these down, take criticism, right? And again, when you are taking criticism, take it from people that you respect, right? So if I have no respect for you and you're criticizing me, Chances are it's going in one ear and out the other, right? But when you take criticism, make sure you're taking it from people that you respect their opinion, um, listen, and it'll help you get better, uh, I promise. Um, admit when you're wrong. Huge for me, right? I was wrong trying to drive across that median, right? I can admit it. I was wrong. I made a mistake. Um, and I was wrong, but you have to admit when you're wrong with the dumpster fire, you know, I just happened to know where the, you know, I, I had been there before. I knew where it was and you were able to admit, Hey, I was wrong. You know, you were right. There are so many people in the fire service that have so much experience and life knowledge. 
um, that you have to just be able to admit when you're wrong. The next one is show respect. Uh, when Jen told me all those years ago, people want to work for you, it's because I was able to show respect. It didn't matter if you were the, and if anybody knows anything about retail, you know, sometimes you work with a 55 year old grandma, a 60 year old grandma who just wants to get out the house and you're working with the 18 year old, 17 year old kid right out of high school that wants his first job, right? I was able to show respect, whether you're 60 years older than me or 20 years younger than me, I showed them respect and it made people want to work for me, right? So show people respect. Um, be the change, lead by example. If there is something you see with the saw, for instance, let's go back to the saw, all right, all right, be the change, lead by example. When someone cleans that saw wrong, I go back, clean it correctly, show them how to do it, right? Now I'm the example, right? And, and if you ask anybody around the county, I would hope that they would tell you that on Mondays, they hate working with me, right? I'm okay with that. They hate me on Mondays and they hate me on Saturdays because I lead by example, I want to be the change and I'm going to make sure that my unit on a Monday looks better than anyone else's unit. I, I, that's just my thing. And again, I'm at a slow station. When we were at 71, when I was at 81, yeah, we did the best we could, but you're running five and six calls between, you know, between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. So maybe you don't get it as good as you can. But now having the time that I have for me to be lack on a Monday or a Saturday is no excuse. That's okay. that, for, that's, for those don't, that don't know. Yes, for those, please. yeah, for those that don't know, Mondays, um, and it's different in different departments, but in uh, in Tim's department, Mondays are uh, like a field day on on the units. The apparatus gets cleaned, um, the tools get serviced, all the compartments get cleaned out, everything is inventoried. And it's just like getting that unit to a hundred percent. Now, Saturdays is, is field day on the station, deep cleaning every Saturday. So yeah. that being yeah. said, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I tend to forget that not everyone knows what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, th those are big things to me. Right. And, and again, I, I think that helps with, with my leadership style is, People know that this is what's going to happen. And I'm the same. I'm the same every Monday, right? <laughs> so I, I think people appreciate that. Uh, take responsibility. Um, just it goes back to like, you know, admitting when you're wrong. But yeah, you have to take responsibility. If something was done wrong or, or not correct, or you forgot to do something, take responsibility for your mistake. Keep knowledge, right? I don't care if you're at station 84 or station 51, right? Complete different ends of the spectrum. And I don't mean just in call volume, but I mean actually in the area in which you serve. 84, very, very rural, 51 in the middle of the city, right? So no matter what, seek knowledge, right? You can seek knowledge. I can learn from the guys at 84 because they're gonna fight more brush fires than me, right? I can learn from the guys at 51 because you know, they have five units on scene by the time 84 has two. <laughs> so, you know, you can learn from depending on what side of the county you're on, you know, or whatever, take time to seek knowledge out from other people who may not have the same experiences that you have, right? But seek knowledge. It's out there. Read books, people. Um, go, go, listen, we live in the information age and we are probably living in the time 
of the most uneducated populace I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen in my lifetime, right? The education is out there. It's flowing. You can watch videos. You have audio books. You have all of this knowledge at your fingertips, and we refuse to take advantage of it. I'll never understand that. So seek knowledge. Um, one of my things that I learned was start, stop, and continue when I am uh, – training someone or, 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 or trying to teach them something or, or even in just like a, like, a, like a discipline faction is I need you to stop what you're doing right now, right? Whatever it is, you know, if we're, if we're it, it just stop what you're doing. I need you to do it this way, right? This is the way that it should be done. But I want you to continue doing what you do well, right? So we're starting the conversation immediately with this needs to stop, right? I cannot have you walking around on calls in flip-flops, right? Just obviously something absurd, but that needs to stop immediately, right? What you need to start doing is putting your boots on every time we leave the station. But you know what you do really well? Your uniforms are the best pressed uniforms in the station, right? Your shirts always have creases in them. Your, your brass is always shined. So that start, stop, continue model, I think that's one of the things I might've learned from Jen all these years ago. Um, it, it, it's really good in, in helping people get to the next level. Uh, show character and integrity, huge to me huge character and, and integrity are huge if you don't have character and you don't have integrity i don't want to work with you right because chances are you may walk into a house one day and you may see some money sitting on the counter and you may need to have some money because your wife just lost her job right you have to have character and integrity in this job right i take my laptop to work every day i leave it on my bunk you know when i'm working out or leaving i take the money out of my pocket you know what i'm saying like fire stations are are notorious, you know what I mean, for having things laying around. And so just be very, very cautious of your character and your integrity, because once you lose those, you can't get them back, right? It's very, very, very hard to come back from something like that when someone, you know, if you're attacked with your character or your integrity. Um, there's a big difference in being liked and being respected. There are a lot of lieutenants who are liked. Why? Because they don't make you do your PIPs. They don't make you do your street test. Uh, they, they don't care if you wear your uniform appropriately. Yeah, they're liked, but trust me, those people aren't respected, right? They're, 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 they just can't be because they're just worried about being liked. I'd rather be respected because um, if you're respected, you're, you're liked. How do you want to be remembered was huge for me. Again, maybe that's ego driven, which we, you know, we really didn't have a chance to get into today, but a lot of that, it, it, it may be, a lot of it may be ego driven for me, but how do I want to be remembered? right? I want to be remembered as the guy who was consistent. You know, I want to be remembered as the guy who did a great job. I want to be remembered as the guy who never said enough was enough. Like we can, we can, we can be better. Um, I wanted to bring people to the next level. Okay. I want to leave this place better than I found it. And that's not mine. Somebody told me that years and years and years and years ago. And they said, leave this place better than you found it. And it's stuck with me ever since. Oh, and look at the last one. It's leave this place better than you found it. So skip <laughs> But uh, that, was, that was the last one. And, and I told these guys, you know, during this conversation, I was like, hey, if you can remember a handful of those things when things get tough or when you really need to have that leadership conversation, I think it'll go, I think it'll go very well. Cool. Um, before we go, I'm going to share three books that I've recently read or am reading now and uh actually they're audiobooks the the other books um i started on the audiobooks because i've been uh been busy with a lot of other stuff so i'll have this 
playing in the background and um, the one that I'm currently on is Strategy, A History by uh, one of the, the one that I'm currently uh, listening to is Strategy, A History by Lawrence Friedman. Um, he is one of the world's leading authorities on war and international politics. And uh, how I got in on the strategy kick is I, I read a couple of books on grand strategy. Grand strategy is a term that was coined by a program at Yale University. <clears throat> and it's essentially developing these academics that are going to end up in positions of authority or leadership, even like political positions, that sort of thing. Uh, the our armed forces send officers to this program. Um, so there's there's several books written on it, and it just got me on this strategy kick, and I've been trying to apply it uh, just a a strategic way of thinking toward developing myself as a leader, looking at the long game, how do I get there? And, and you look at the end state that you want to achieve and you work your way back to where you currently are. And you try and figure out all the different pathways that can get you because this decision may lead you down this path and you've got to adjust yourself. And so it's, it's very, to me, it was very interesting. Another book that um, actually I've listened to twice already. Um, I'm, now I'm going back and listening to different sections of it is uh, The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. The other book is the complete works of Seneca the Younger, who is a uh, Stoic philosopher, you know, ancient times back. Uh, Stoicism, the school of Stoic thought, Stoic philosophy, was founded back in, uh, I want to say it was like 300 BC around there. Um, and some of history's greatest leaders attribute their philosophy to reading works of Stoic philosophers. So uh, Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic um, who is referenced as one of Rome's top five emperors, top five greatest emperors. Uh, so an amazing leader and he was a student of Stoic philosophy. So based on, on that, I'd like to share some of uh, what I've read and, and what I'm reading. And I know that you're very well read and um, you've actually mentioned a couple of books I don't think by name, but you've referenced them. What are, what are three books that you would recommend? Wow. Um, I know you mentioned Jocko. Yeah, Jocko's a good guy. Jocko's a good one. Um, he's got a, he's got a few books out there that I've that I've read. 
Um, give me one second. One is sitting right here. Let me get the name of it for you. So strange. Um, I am still in. I guess I'm a little what you call old school, right? I still like I still like books. Um, I like carrying them around with me. It's it's weird, right? So I traveled a lot when I did uh, when I got deep into my retail career, and I read a lot. Sitting in airports and you know airplanes and all that stuff. So I read a lot, but anyway, I still like my book. So I'm going to give you four because these are the four that are sitting closest to me that I have right now. Uh, one is discover your Clifton strengths. Um, and it's by Don Clifton and it's called discover your Clifton strengths. So it goes back into the, like I said, of, uh, finding people's strengths and trying to develop those strengths, not necessarily always. Right. This one is a little kind of out there, uh, maybe not so much of a leadership book, but it's something that I, I just started and it's John Allegro, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian myth. Uh, basically, this guy found the, well, helped to translate the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found years and years and years ago, back like, in, I think it's like 76 or something like that. So way after, you know, the Bible was written. Um, and basically what he's saying is a lot of it was translated wrong. So interesting book. Uh, this one I got from uh, my buddy Joe Rogan, right? So I, another guy that I listened to, uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. And I, yeah, man, I read that last summer. That's an awesome book. Yeah, I'm about halfway through. It, great book, right? So um, it's about the rise and fall of the Comanches. Uh, the Comanches were probably, I'm going to say, if not the most feared uh, warriors ever, <laughs> they, they, they were pretty close. Um, the Comanches were really the first to learn horseback, like how to fight off of horseback. And they were just destroying people. No one, no one could keep up with them. They were in and out before people even realized what was going on. I mean, mainly because of how good they were on horseback. So another great book. And then this is an old one, um, but every now and then I will read through this one. And it's uh, Life and Leadership. And that's by Colin Powell. So again, that one I've read a couple of times, but every now and then, like I have bookmarks and stuff like that that I, that I kind of read through. So those are the four closest to me. Um, and two of them, I'm still in the middle of reading, uh, which is a, another problem that I have is that I'll get into one and then I'll see something else. And be like, Ooh, like I heard of another book the other day that I just, I ordered an audio book for the first time. So that's going to be interesting. Um, I'll tell you the name of that one too. I haven't gotten into it yet, but Tim highly recommended. But I do, I get into these, you know, I get into these books and then I'm like, oh, I hear about something else. And then I kind of get into that one. But the new one is called Irresistible. And basically it's about the rise of addictive technology and personalities and what, you know, kind of goes back to the conversation we had about social media um, and how people get hooked. And it's just on everything that, you know, that, that we consider addictions now. And I think Americans are everything. We're addicted to television, we're addicted to social media. Uh, we're addicted to spending money. We're it's a huge addiction population. Anyway, now those are, those are my book. Uh, that's that's my book club right there. <laughs> that's what, that's what, you know, I'm not Oprah, but hey, those are some good books that if you can start to get into. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Oh, it's a pleasure. We we uh, we covered a lot of ground today, man. Uh, a lot of. A lot of great information, um, awesome perspectives that I think can can serve to to help enlighten uh, people that maybe haven't been exposed 
so yeah, man, thank you so much. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm, I'm not a hard guy to find. Um, I don't have a huge social media presence. You know, I don't have like the Twitter and the Instagram or any of that stuff. But um, for people that are watching this that know who I am, uh, I'm, I'm not hard to find. You know where to find me. And I love to have these conversations. If you ever want to sit down and talk, I'll buy the beer. I'll buy the lunch. Um, these are conversations that need to be had. I think this is a lost art form. I, I really, really do. Um, I remember seeing my, you know, my dad and my brother and my uncles just sit down with their buddies and have lunch and, and talk about life and about other things and, and different perspectives. So I'm not hard to find guys. You ever want to sit down and talk about any of those things, you know, from leadership to, to society to, to whatever the case may be. I love the conversation. I love the intellectual thought. Um, so please, seek me out. We'll, we'll sit down. We'll chit chat. And maybe we can learn something from each other in life, right? Awesome, man. Thank you. Love you, brother. Have a good day. You too, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team. <laughs>